This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Oh, here we go, boys. that sound. This is a good one. Hey everybody and welcome to Waterfowl Wednesday edition of the Full Scale Outdoors podcast. I'm your host Nick Johnson. It is Wednesday, July 6th. And I hope you guys had a really good 4th of July. I got to get out and uh, drink for several days in a row. Not excessively, but I had a good time up at my mom's place, riding around on the pontoon, playing golf with my brother, um, hanging out with the wife. We had a great 4th of July. Got a chance to sit down and read the um, Declaration of Independence, as I like to do every 4th of July. I posted that on my Snapchat. Um, just remind myself how badass and courageous and ballsy and how much of a death wish all those dudes who signed the Declaration of Independence had when they sent that over to the king. I can't imagine the king's face when he opened that fucking letter. Like, well, let's send, uh, let's send the army over there to kill everybody. Wrong, motherfucker. We win. I don't know. I, that shit just... I love American history. Just reading that text, it's just like the best, most elegant or eloquent, uh, fuck you letter ever written, <laughs> in my opinion. I guess I've never, I've written some fuck you letters, and they're just all based off that. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But, uh, if you didn't get a chance to read that, I definitely recommend it. So Dale's got the day off today. Uh, he said he was super busy, and he asked me if I could do a solo episode. I would like to get to a little bit about, um, about the September Canada goose hunting episode I did last week. I actually got some really good feedback from some people, and uh, I should have wrote it down, but 
I should have made a list. My plan was to go through everything with Dale and then have him listen to it and add to it for this week's episode. But since Dale's super busy, he can't sit down for 15 minutes with his good buddy Nick J to talk about Canada goose hunting. I figure we could do another episode of Keeping Tabs. Um, Keeping Tabs is a segment, or not a segment, I guess it's an entire episode where I go through my tabs on my Safari, on my phone, and I get a chance to clear some of them out. And they're basically all waterfall related. Some of them are relevant and interesting. Some of them are sciencey and geeky. And um, I usually am always running way too many tabs. My phone acts super fucking weird. So sitting down for 15 minutes and talking into this microphone is a good chance to clear them out. And I know I got a few good ones in there. And, uh, But a few less, too. I actually sat down over the weekend. I got my tabs down from, uh, they were at 100, or 100 or 101, and I got them down to about 60. But I do have some interesting tabs that have come up, and uh, some new things that are going on, and some interesting articles to explore. So without further ado, let's jump into it. Um, This is an article from Wildfowl Magazine. That came up. Not typically my source for political news, but this is a political article. And the title is New Congressional Bill Threatens Pittman Robertson Act, Wildlife Restoration Act. If you guys don't know what the Pittman Robertson Act is, it's a uh, 10% excise tax on all like ammunition, um, hunting arms, and I think that includes archery and bows and arrows, and this goes back to like the 30s. Maybe I should just read this a little bit, and I probably can stop guessing a little bit, but it's a 10% tax, and it goes back into the states for conservation measures. So there's these uh, Republican congressmen out of Georgia named Andrew Clyde who proposed legislation that would repeal this landmark piece of wildlife conservation legislation in the United States. The Pittman-Robertson Act slash Wildlife Restoration Act not only protects hunter education, wildlife, and habitat conservation, the act also has protective guardrails in place to make sure that state governments don't divert funds into other areas deliberately or otherwise. In a controversial move that is being met with a firestorm of fierce criticism from various corners of the wildlife conservation world, a North Georgia congressman has proposed legislation that would essentially repeal a landmark piece of legislation that has served as a cornerstone of wildlife conservation in America for 85 years, the Pittman-Robertson Act, also known as the Wildlife Restoration Act. What exactly is the Pittman Wildlife Restoration Act? According to the U.S. House of Representatives websites, the Pittman-Robertson Act traces its root back to the Great Depression and Dust Bowl days when Franklin Roosevelt signed into law the Wildlife Restoration Act also known as the Pittman-Robertson Act of 1937. Named after its sponsors, Key Pittman of Nevada in the Senate and Absalom Willis Robertson of Virginia in the House, this act directs taxes on firearms and ammunition sales back to the individual states to fund wildlife management and habitat protection. And it's also held in high esteem by nearly everyone associated with wildlife conservation and protecting our nation's hunting heritage. And that's true not only for conservation and the benefit, but the PR Act provides, but also for the protective guardrails that it puts in place, blah, 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 blah. In fact, many billions of dollars are at stake. Um, And this is not empty rhetoric. Um, The Department of the Interior noted in a 2022 press release that to date the service has distributed some 25 or more than 25.5 billion dollars in 
apportionments for state conservation and recreation projects. The recipient state wildlife agencies have matched these funds with eight and a half billion through the years. Okay, so we got what? 1937, that's 85 years. It's given back $25 billion. I suppose that goes up in time with um, uh, inflation. That You're going to get more because guns cost more than they did in 1937. But um, anyways, this is not an insignificant amount of money that goes towards conservation. It sounds like it goes to the state wildlife agencies. Um, so it makes me wonder, like, why the fuck? Okay. In this, in this era of political gridlock, um, where really not shit gets through, um, Trump got through like a human, god damn it, I can't remember the name of that fucking act he signed or whatever, but it was freaking enormous. It was enormous. It had bipartisan support. And there's been a couple other ones too, um, that get through Congress and the Senate and to the president's desk really easily. And they're like... In an era of political gridlock, the things that I've, the thing that brings a lot of Democrats and Republicans together is wildlife conservation. I feel like like we've actually benefited from this political gridlock because it's really not popular for anybody to be like fuck wildlife, you know. Like, so there's been a bunch of good stuff done, uh, both with I think the Trump administration and the Biden administration getting a lot of money. So it's like. Okay, so why does this dude, Andrew Clyde, want to get rid of this? Um, Earlier this week, Congressman Andrew Clyde, along with 53 co-sponsors, all Republican, introduced the return, repealing excise tax on unalienable rights now, our Constitutional Rights Act. So it's called the Return Our Constitutional Rights Act. H.R. 8167, and RETURN is an acronym for Repealing Excise Tax on Unalienable Rights Now, which seeks to, quote, to amend the Internal Revenue Code of 1986 to repeal certain excise taxes relating to firearms and for other purposes. In layman's terms, the proposed bill will eliminate much of the money that fuels the longstanding Pittman-Robertson Act. That would happen when certain excise taxes on firearms, ammunition, and bows and arrows would be stopped, all in the name of defending America's Second, um, America's Second Amendment liberties, according to the Georgia representative. In the background section of his press release detailing the bill, Clyde indicates that currently an excise tax is applied at the manufacturer level for every firearm and all ammunition sales sold in the United States that is purchased by anyone other than the Department of Defense and local and state law enforcement. This tax infringes on America's Americans' ability to exercise their Second Amendment rights and creates a dangerous opportunity for the government to weaponize taxation to price this unalienable right out of reach for most of Americans, a threat that is materializing by the day. Recently, Representative Don Beyer, Democrat Virginia, introduced the assault weapons excise tax, which would impose a 1,000% tax on semi-automatic weapons. Okie dokie. There's a lot to digest there. Um, yes, uh, that's interesting to make a case against new taxes. Uh, whenever you introduce a new tax, I would expect a lot of pushback on that. Although, uh, it's weird that there's this pushback on a tax that got introduced in 1937 and is incredibly popular. And then when they say, when they say, like, uh, the justification, they're talking about an introduced assault weapons excise tax, which would impose a $1,000 tax 
on semi-automatic weapons. So again, that would be opposition to a new tax and not a tax that has passed, not a tax that has been up for debate, not a tax that has gone anywhere, just a tax that got introduced. Introduced is not a law. I could introduce, you know, anything I want into the Congress if I'm a congressman. Um, if it goes anywhere and goes back to the Senate, goes to the Senate and gets signed by the president, it's a, a different deal. And I would expect if a guy put a thousand a thousand percent tax on semi-automatic weapons, he's going to get a lot of fucking pushback on something like that, obviously. So uh, I, I guess I could see the opposition on this new tax, but um, I, I guess I don't understand why it would eliminate all taxes on all firearms and uh, if this has pushed hunting out of the reach of normal Americans, um, I, don't, I don't know if I can agree with that because I would say that, I guess in my lifetime, the cost of uh, shotguns has been either stable or gone down a little bit. Eh, maybe not. Maybe the price of, like, Benelli's has gone up. Anyways, that's going on right now. And speaking of, like, introduced legislation, I think this is just introduced as well. Like, this hasn't gone anywhere. I don't think the president would ever sign something like this. But it's just, it's weird. It gives you a kind of a, a, uh, an idea of where some people are pushing back on some good conservation measures. Uh, maybe find out if your congressman or whatever is part of the 53 people and be like, yo, you know, if you like the Pittman-Robertson Act, say, uh, maybe keep it. Whatever. We can move on from that. Fuck politics. Um, I got a pretty interesting article about the waterfowl breeding survey in California. Um, I posted it recently. The North Dakota one has, uh, has a 13% uh, increase, I think, and a 16% increase on the amount of ducks from this year to last year. And, uh, crazy wild swings in the amount of drought and the amount of water on the lands landscape. Well, that's great news. There's a lot of um, there's a lot of good news about waterfowl abundance coming out of like the central and the Mississippi flyways with the return of a lot of our moisture. But unfortunately, this is an article out of the Oakdale Leader, and it's a article titled "Waterfowl Breeding Survey Results Show Steep Decrease." And this is for California only. They must do their own surveys, similar to uh, maybe what North Dakota does. Um, I know a lot of the listenership of this show is based close around the Twin Cities or the Northerns, the Northern States, and doesn't really get too far out of like out to the Pacific Flyway. But this is, and a lot of guys from Minnesota are actually kind of surprised to learn this that California is the one of the top three duck harvesting states every year, every single year. Like there are so many ducks that winter in the um sacramento valley there's i mean i think they say i heard some number and i'm not going to get this right but it's something like 80 percent of all waterfowl in the in north america winter in one of two places the sacramento valley of california and the mississippi alluvial valley that runs from like tennessee arkansas mississippi you know down the mississippi alluvial valley basically from memphis south so you've got two major areas in North America for uh, waterfowl. And in terms of ducks and geese that are in the Pacific Flyway, 
It's like 90% of all of them will stop in the Sacramento Valley of California. It's, um, and if guys, if you've never thought about going to hunt California, that's something that needs to be on your radar too. Like if you ever thought about doing a cool duck hunting trip, look west. You got a seven bird limit, a seven mallard limit, I think it is. Um, the Pacific Flyway has a 107-day season. I mean, there are just storied duck clubs out there, and there is awesome hunts to be had. If you go south, I mean, um, you don't have to go to Mexico to get your cinnamon teals, guy. guys. You can go to California, and cinnamon teals are everywhere. Anyways, let's get to this uh, article. Let's briefly read it as fast as I can, saying as many words with one breath as possible. The California Department of Fish and Wildlife has completed its 2022 Waterfall Breeding Population Survey. The resulting data indicate that the overall number of breeding ducks has decreased by 19%, including mallards that are the most abundant duck in the survey. Survey indicated that 25% decrease in the mallard abundance, said CDFW's Waterfowl Program biologist Melanie Weaver. Habitat conditions are poor in both northeastern and in the Central Valley. So below average production for most waterfowl species is expected. Here's another interesting fact about... California and their mallards. Some of their mallards come from like Montana and Alberta and um, I don't want to screw this up, but I want to say Alaska. Like there's some uh, breeding uh, Alaskan mallards that come through California, but I will screw this up. Uh, I don't know the exact number, but it's a huge percentage of their um, the mallard harvest from California is ducks born in California. Obviously, California is an enormous state that stretches very far north to south. So you can get kind of um, these populations that can breed in the north and winter in the south and never leave the state of California, obviously. But it is interesting, I mean, how localized that population of mallards is. I mean, when you talk about like mallards that are wintering in the Mississippi Alluvial Valley, a lot of times they are going to like northern Saskatchewan, like by the Alberta border um, to breed. So you get birds that are covering huge distances like in the Mississippi and the Central Flyways, where on in the California, you don't get them covering that much distance. Um, and they have a very, very, very like a local population of mallards that they are killing. So when they do these population surveys of mallards, that's super detrimental to the people in California. Like, here's how many mallards we have in California. That's basically a telltale sign of how many mallards we're going to be killing in California. Anyways, let's get back to this. Um, the full breeding population survey report, which can be found on the CDFW website, indicates the total number of ducks, all species combined, decreased from 470,000 450 in 2019, the last year the survey was conduct conducted to 379,870 this year. This estimate is 30% below the long-term average. The estimated breeding population of mallards decreased from 239,000 to 180,000, which is below their long-term average. The decline is attributed to the ongoing drought and the loss of upland nesting habitat for ducks. CDFW biologists and warden pilots have conducted this survey annually using fixed-wing aircraft since 1948. The population estimates for those areas where most of the waterfowl nesting occurs in California, including wetland and agricultural areas in northeastern California, throughout the Central Valley, the Susan Marsh, and some coastal valleys. The majority of California's wintering duck population originates from breeding areas surveyed by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Alaska and Canada. 
Wintering duck. Okay, so some do come from Alaska, but I specified mallards. And these results should be available by August. Looking forward to those results. For sure, we're going to do a full show about those results when the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Survey comes out. Man, I'm excited for that. I hope it says good things. Um, so basically, yeah, they're saying bad things about ducks in California. That's not good at all. That's an amazing place to hunt. Uh, more news, too, like bad news out of the Pacific Northwest, is I know that um, Washington State shut down their harlequin season. So there was... Um, in, there's only a couple places you can shoot a harlequin in the United States. One being Alaska, which I still think you can do it there, and two being Washington State. And they had a one-per-season limit. And I haven't dug into this too much. I wish I had a tab about it. Um, maybe I can Google it, actually. But um, they shut that down this year, which is unfortunate for the guys that are um, are trying to get their... Um, Ultimate Waterfowler Challenge, get all the North American species of ducks. Um, that's unfortunate, because uh, I guess you'd have to go to Alaska, but I guess, I, I don't know if you can get a cool plumed out harlequin in Alaska. I don't know when their plumage comes in fully and when they're still available to harvest in Alaska. Anyways, blah, 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 that's on the Oakdale leader. Sorry, California, sucks to be you. Shit's going good here in the Mississippi and Central Flyway. Um... <laughs> Um, let's see here. Here we go. Here's something, uh, from a research paper point of view. Citizen Science. Here's the, this is the title, and I found this on Wiley Online Library. Citizen Science reveals waterfowl responses to extreme winter weather. Um, Nicholas M. Masto is your author. And let's see here. I think this is, there's a lot of science-y languages here, language in here. They got an abstract, and I think what they're doing, okay, they're using eBird. Ah, fuck it. I'm just going to read it. <sighs> Global, let's restart. Global climate change is increasing the frequency and severity of extreme climatic events, which may be especially detrimental during late winter when many species are surviving on scarce resources. However, monitoring animal populations relative to ECEs is logistically challenging. Crowdsource data sets may provide the opportunity to monitor species responses to short-term chance phenomena such as ECEs. We used 14 years of eBird a global citizen science initiative to examine distribution changes for seven wintering waterfowl species across North American response to recent extreme winter polar vortex disruptions. To validate inferences from eBird, we compared eBird distribution changes against local location data from 362 GPS-tagged mallards in the Mississippi flyway. Distributional shifts between eBird and GPS-tagged mallards were similar following ECE what is an ECE? Extreme climactic event in February 2021. All right, pause. I figured that's what this article was about, is they were going to actually use some real, like, GPS da data and compare that with eBird um, citizen science data to see exactly what the fuck happened to um, wintering waterfowl when we got that crazy um, polar vortex in February 2021, like when Texas froze and people were hunting snow geese on ice in Arkansas which I thought would be really interesting to actually get some real data because people, there were so many, um, there were so many um, guesses about what, what's going to happen with the birds. 
Man, uh, I thought when it got that cold, like it does here in Minnesota, our giant Canada's will kind of sit it out for a day or two. They'll go feed after sunset and they go into like a, a little bit of a hibernation state. So uh, I talked to a couple outfitters that were talking about canceling clients and they ended up not doing that. And boy, was that the right decision. Um, they fucking piss pounded geese. Um, I knew of people doing it in Arkansas, in Kansas, in Oklahoma. Um, if you had a good hot field, uh, those birds really got into an emergency situation, which it, it might just be a species difference compared to our large Canada's that are just sleeping all day when it's cold and clear like that compared to these smaller body birds that I'm not going to say a smaller body doesn't means that you're not going to be as winter adapt because obviously there's Tweety birds that stay in the Arctic tundra all year long so it's just a species thing like are the is this species um uh able to adapt to their climactic cold climactic conditions and it seemed like for some of the smaller bodied geese the answer was no because people were massacring them anyways in general the ECE affected continental waterfowl population distributions. However, responses were variable across species and flyways. Waterfowl distributions tended to stay near wintering latitudes or move north at lesser distances compared with non-ECE years. All right, I got to read that again because that, that kind of went through my head and I didn't understand it. The ECE affected continental waterfowl populations dis distributions. Okay, so the cold weather affected where birds were. Okay, however... Responses were variable across species and flyways. Okay, so how much did the bird move depended heavily on which flyway it lived in and what species it was. Waterfall distributions tended to stay near wintering latitudes. So that would mean when it says that stay near wintering latitudes, that's a bird migrating around east to west, more than north to south. So when they say uh, they're, they're not going any further south, like a bird that's wintering in Oklahoma isn't jumping to Mexico. It might just be starting to look around Oklahoma more for where the hell is some open water. Okay. Um, or moved north at lesser distances. Okay. So they're saying like so, there's always a little bit of northward movement at that time in February, but compared to other years, they did not move as far north. Okay, suggesting preparedness for spring migration was a stronger pull than extreme weather was a push. That's very interesting. That's very interesting. So they're not only are they saying like it didn't push them as far as they thought, but they were ready for that migration, which, I mean, that's cool. And I was just talking about how people were massacring in like Kansas and Oklahoma and Arkansas. Um... Maybe they would have had those good hunts had the weather just been normal anyways because birds were putting the feed bag on and trying to get north. Um, anyways, I have to imagine, though, that, okay, a good healthy bird is ready for spring and a two-week event like this, it's going to be a, a road bump in their migration and in their lifestyle. But I would have to also imagine that if you're a goose or a duck that's not doing great, Something like this could be a huge detriment to your life. Like, if you're already, like, not in breeding condition, and you've been struggling to find food, and something like this, I feel like, could murder you. So, this is a very interesting uh, article. And I've got the abstract, the introduction, 
Oh, wow, we got some maps in here uh, from February 15th, like how cold it was. Let's see what else we got. Extreme weather events. I'm not going to spend 20 minutes. Oh, yeah, here we go. We got some Mississippi of Louisville Valley. We got some GPS um, mallard movement in here uh, in figure two. Um, and this is an article that you do not have to email the uh, author to get your hands on. This must have been free because blah, blah, blah. The whole thing is in here. Conclude discussion. Conclusion. Is there a conclusion? There's a discussion. Contributions. Okay, let me uh, put this title out there one more time. That is Citizen Science Reveals Waterfowl Responses to Extreme Winter Weather. And the author is Nicholas M. Masto, who should definitely be next week's guest. <laughs> this is a super interesting article. Um, that's in the Wiley Online Library. When I talk about, um, you can Google this stuff when I talk about uh, research papers, but the best way to find research papers is going to be Google Scholar. And Google Scholar, you can just put in anything like Mississippi Flyway Mallard Distribution. Boop! And you can see all sorts of research papers that people have written about mallard. You know, it's just like using Google, but for research papers. If you can't read the articles on the links, the, they almost always have an uh, email to the author. You can email them, and uh, they are always like, what? Somebody wants to read my article? Like, yeah, here it is. It's super easy to get that stuff. All right. Let's move on to another tab. We've got... Nesting Ecology of Wood Ducks and Other Cavity Nesting Ducks in Mississippi. 96 pages long. You know, sometimes I click on things because they uh, they seem interesting. Oh, let's see here. We're not going to do this one. We're not going to do this one. Anyway, somebody out there has written a 96 long, 96 page long paper that's titled The Nesting Ecology of Wood Ducks and Other Cavity Nesting Ducks in Mississippi. Um, we've talked about uh, southern nesting wood ducks on this podcast before. Um, one thing that's really interesting they find with banding data is um, once they become a year old, the males do molt migrations to like Minnesota, Wisconsin, North Dakota, South Dakota, and even southern like Manitoba. Uh, I don't know what that's about, like looking for acorns, like uh, oak tree acorns, like during our mast years maybe. But um, let's see here. Let's see if there's any... Yeah, female, uh, they got female uh, banding and recapture data in here. They've got a bunch of cool maps. They've got a bunch of, they've got a bunch of cool wood duck stuff in here. If you're 96 pages worth of board and you love wood ducks, check this out. The nesting ecology of wood ducks and other cavity nesting ducks in Mississippi. Let's see what else. I got some, um... Where's that one about smoke? I got one about smoke in here. Dude, all right, here's one. I can't believe I didn't talk about this first and foremost. This came up on Facebook where people were saying you cannot transport birds that have been harvested in Canada into the United States. Um, That's not true. There are some zones in Canada now where if you are to go hunting in Canada and you go hunting in these zones, you cannot transport those birds back into the United States. I have no idea why. 
I didn't read into it that much. I just saw the salacious headlines like, nobody can bring back birds into America. I even saw some guys saying some stuff like um, disparaging outfitters and guides for not telling their clients about it, which is like, uh, this news came out uh, that day. <laughs> and uh, um, uh, it does affect some zones. So if you want to find out if the area that you go to in Saskatchewan or Alberta has a zone like this, they're like, I looked at them. They look like they're like the size of like cities, how big these zones are. Go to inspection.canada.ca. Boom. All right. That gets you there. Once you're on that website, you click on the search bar and you type in the search bar, highly pathogenic avian influenza zones. Again, inspection.canada.ca. Search bar, highly pathogenic avian influenza zones. That's going to show you these zones that you cannot bring birds back to the United States from. Which, um, okay. Let's say I went, I, I don't get it. How about this? I'll avoid those zones. I won't go hunting in those zones. That makes things easy. But if I do, can I hunt there as long as I'm like, let's say I'm on a 10-day trip to Canada. What if I hunt in those zones and we're eating all those birds, you know, for the first few days? So we're not bringing them back to the United States. Okay, uh, that shouldn't be an issue. Again, this is something like, if you're going to Canada, look into this. I'm, I, I have yet to look into this. I have to. But it is not the case where you cannot bring back birds. And then, even on, a, on another level, isn't it like... Hey, uh, you're at the border, you got all these birds, and uh, they're like, did you shoot those in any of those zones you can't shoot, bring birds back from? And you're like, no. What are they going to do? Be like, I mean, unless they're wearing a fucking GPS tag. <laughs> and, you, you know, like, I, I don't understand. It seems like, it seems like some scientists got the ears of a politician and was like, blah, 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 we shouldn't let that happen. And then they make some regulations and without thinking about like, well, how are we going to enforce that? Like, isn't this going to make a bunch of confusion? Isn't Facebook going to go nuts with a bunch of assholes on there trying to misinform everybody? Like, there's a lot of issues with that. If you plan on, go to, if you plan on going to Canada this year, make sure you look into that. Another thing, too, uh, you're going to want to look into in Canada, and I have yet to look this up as well, um, is they relaxed a bunch of regulations up there. Um, Delta Waterfowl, I got an email from them saying that uh, Delta Waterfowl applauds the modernization of waterfowl regulations in Canada. It's something about, like, uh, I think leaving a head or a wing on. I think it used to say, like, head and wing, and now it's head or wing. Also, once you've... Uh, processed birds, like made them into jerky or sausage. They no longer count towards your possession limit. Again, this is something I need to read through myself and get all of the exact details, but know that this has happened. Canada has updated and modernized their regulations to make waterfowl hunting easier. Right? Crazy. They want it to be easier for hunters to follow the laws and more inviting for hunters to come and spend money in Canada. Maybe it's a response to like, uh, you know, the loss of tourism dollars. I don't know. Check it out. That's happened. Okay, let's see here. I had another article in here that was about smoke. Um, here's avian influenza detected in Willamette Valley. Yeah, blah, blah, blah. We know changes in waterfowl migration in central north america implications for future waterfowl conservation 
I don't remember this one. This is changes in waterfowl migration phenologies in Central North America implications for future waterfowl conservation. It might as well just read implications for future waterfowl killing. Because when you learn about this stuff, that's what we're just studying. We're studying for our future hunting success. Don't be that guy that goes to the same pond for 30 years and then writes to his legislature that this hunting is terrible these days. Let's just read a little bit of this abstract. Because um, I had a couple more I wanted to get through. I, wanted, I had that one about smoke in the Pacific Northwest. Globally, the migration phenologies of numerous avian species have shifted over the past half century. Despite North American waterfowl being well-researched, published data on shifts in waterfowl migration phenologies remains scarce. Understanding shifts in waterfowl migration phenologies along with potential drivers is critical for guiding future conservation efforts future killing efforts. Therefore, we utilize historical non-breeding waterfowl survey data collected at 21 National Wildlife Refuges in the mid to lower portion of the central flyway to summarize changes in spring and autumn migration phenology. We examine changes in timing of peak abundance from survey data at monthly intervals for each refuge and species by year and site-specific temperature for spring, January through March and autumn, October through December migration periods. For spring and autumn, data says 13% and 9% exhibited statistically significant changes in the timing of peak migration across years, respectively, while the corresponding numbers of increasing temperatures were 4 and 9% during spring migration, more than or equal to 80% of significant changes in the timing of spring peak indicated advancements, while 67% of significant changes in autumn peak timing indicated delays both across years and with increasing temperatures. Four refuges showed a consistent pattern across species of advancing spring migration peaks over time. So this is super, this is a super interesting article. Let's see your citations, data availability, introductions, methods. Looks like they've got nine figures. Ooh, I love the figures. I love pictures. Um, shows the, uh, let's see here. Ooh, we got some graphs. Ooh, we got some numbers. Nice. Uh, this is a pretty freaking sweet article. This is a really good one. Let me read that, um, title one more time. Uh, and I gotta read this one. I'm gonna definitely at least look at the pictures on this one. Changes in Waterfowl Migration Phenologies, spelled P-H-E-N-O-L-O-G-I-E-S, in Central North America, implications for future waterfowl conservation. Again, one more time. Changes in waterfowl migration phenology in Central North America, implications for future future waterfowl conservation by Kent Anderson. Uh, another potential good guest on the podcast. Uh, that's a very interesting one. Let's see if I can't find that smoke article. Um, blah, blah, blah. Here it is right here. Okay, megafires and thick smokes portend big problems for migratory birds. In 2020, the fire season affecting the western United States reached unprecedented levels. The 116 fires active in September consumed nearly 20,822 square kilometers. Blah, blah, blah. Let's see if we can find something here about waterfowl. Blah, blah, blah. Further west in the Pacific flyways. Okay, so this article has got a picture of a dead juvie speck. <laughs> Appear, like it appears on the middle of like a desert highway, like a, like a highway in the desert and says, goose mortality during migration, juvenile greater white-fronted goose answer albifrons without external injury and weighing nearly a half kilogram. 
of a healthy bird's expected weight was found dead in the arid desert of northern Nevada following recent wildfires. Cause of mortality is presumed to be starvation occurring during migration. They found a dead speck on the middle of a desert road and figured it died because it starved itself, avoiding smoke. All right. Seems kind of uh, weird, right? Seems like yeah, maybe it did. All right, you find a skinny bird in the desert dead on the highway. But then they actually have some really great GPS stuff. I think I might have posted this on my Snapchat a while ago. If you're not following me on Snapchat, I post a lot of my tabs that I find interesting on Snapchat. Uh, just um, get into Snap. Johnson 2367 is my account. I would do a lot more on other platforms, but Instagram doesn't let me... Um, Instagram doesn't let me post links on my story, at least, you know, like I could have a link in my, I've thought about getting my own website and then having a link to that website and then doing it like news outlets do like stories and link in bio, you click the link and it's got everything they've ever posted in there, blah, blah, blah. But I don't do that. So follow me on Snapchat because Snapchat makes it easy to post links to interesting stuff. Um, this is only a five page read. It's pretty interesting. Um, we've had some, uh, um, big smoke events in Manitoba and Minnesota and North and South Dakota in 2021. So somebody asked me one time, do you think all this smoke's going to affect the migration? I was like, no, no. Well, apparently it does at least a little bit. I'm sure birds, it says that birds are still ending up at where they were. But, um, if you look at the no smoke migration GPS track to the smoke GPS track. Like basically the, the, the migration paths of the year when there was no smoke is just like squiggly lines going straight from refuge to refuge. And then, um, the one with smoke is just like crazy lines going everywhere from refuge to refuge. So that's definitely some compelling evidence that birds are affected by thick plumes of smoke. Anyways, um, look, we're at 39 minutes and 30 seconds. We should probably wrap this up. I have got some other interesting stuff. Damn it. The Legends of Jack Miner by Wildfowl. That's a good tab. Um, technology has taught us much about migratory birds, but can it save them? From Earth.org. Our author, Pamela Ferris. This is, I started reading this one right before the show because I was looking through my tabs. This thing looks really fucking cool. Um, it talks about banding stuff like the history of banding, and then it gets into, um, satellite use for tracking birds. And also it gets into, um, how the national weather service is starting to help track migrations through Doppler radars. That's something we've all talked, or we talked about on this podcast. Lots of times is using Doppler radar to track migration patterns of birds. But unfortunately I have stuff I got to do today. Um, and I'm going to have to cut it short. That was actually kind of fun uh, reading through all that stuff. Maybe we should just cut Dale out of this whole thing altogether and I'll just rip off articles from the internet for content every single week. Um, <laughs> anyways, guys, hey, we are past July 4th, which means uh, that used to be like, oh man, school's coming back up. Now it's like, oh my God, hunting season is going to be here in five or six weeks in North Dakota. It's looking at nine or 10 weeks. Guys, get your goose calls to me. I'm at P.O. Box 168, New Richmond, Wisconsin, 54017. 
Take your call apart, all the way apart. Take the guts out of it. Take the reed out of it. If your reed's not broken, you don't need to replace it. Send everything to me. Everything, but after you clean it. That's what I was getting to. Take it all apart. Clean everything. Rinse it all off. Cold water, not hot water, because you can warp the mylar of the reed. Use cold water. Use soap. Rinse and repeat. Get your goose call real clean. Send it to P.O. Box 168, New Richmond, Wisconsin. 54017. I will tune your goose call and make sure it's ready for season. All you have to do is include $10 inside the box and a tip if you want to, but $10 for the return shipping because um, click and ship small flat rate boxes are like $9.50. So it cost me $9.50 to print you a label and send it back to you. I am the goose hunter advocate. I am trying to help people kill more geese, have awesome memories with their friends and family. If you're not sure if your goose call um, is in tune or not, get it over to me. P.O. Box 168, New Richmond, Wisconsin, 54017. Um, get geared up maybe with a new goose call. Maybe that Nick Johnson signature series from PacificCustomCalls.com. That's their website, PacificCustomCalls.com. Go into goose calls. You're going to see the Nick Johnson signature series. At the end of this month, I'm flying out to Spokane, Washington, and we are going to build the second edition of the Nick Johnson signature series. My goose call I came out with last year was 4.25 inches in length. This one is going to be 4.6. It's going to give it a Big, big goose tone. My first goose call, I wanted to be an all-around trafficy little spitfire. This was going to be the big boy, the Canadensis Maxima, Branta Canadensis Maxima edition of the Nick Johnson Signature Series. Um, get online. Make sure you download a uh, Goose Tech app. That's on the uh, Apple App Store. It's on the Google Play Store. It's $20. Okay, it's $20. It's the same price as an old goose calling DVD. It's got all of my goose calling lesson stuff in there. Tons of awesome content. We're going to be adding more content to it this summer. I just got off the uh, phone with uh, Taylor Tibbetts, who owns Got Game Technologies, the app store. They hired a dude to give all your apps a uh, pretty sweet new facelift. So that is going to be, uh, I think by the end of the summer, he said he was hoping to have Goose Tech with a nice facelift on it. So... Then we're going to start re-releasing, or not re-releasing, we're going to start releasing all the like sequence stuff I did, and then I'm getting a studio set up at my new home here in New Richmond, and we're going to start filming content here, and we're going to start doing a lot more like quick clips, social media type stuff. Follow the Goose Tech app on Instagram, uh, buy the Goose Tech app. Remember guys, this is a full frontal assault, get good at goose calling. Um, check out um, my great friend Joe Heinz and uh, Scott Trinan. They are also in the Goose Calling Entertainment instructional game, and they got some fire content for $4 a month. You can get Goose Tech for $20. You can get one-time payment of $20. You can get the uh, Roost for $4. And I, I have no affiliation with the Roost, except I like Scott and I like Joe, and they're putting out great content that I think will help goose hunters. So... Um, and also Joe has got some really awesome hunts in there. Uh, and so does Scott, obviously. But I'm really proud of what my great friend Joe has done with the roost and what Scott ha has done continuing his goose calling education. I think his is called like 30 Weeks to Better Calling. Remember, full frontal assault. Get better at goose calling no matter what. And um, anyways, that's going to do it for this week. 
check out the Goose Tech app, the Nick Johnson Signature Series, Goose Call. I've got an appearance coming up on the Knee Deep in the Duck Blind podcast from Duck Hunting Fanatics. I'll post a link when that comes out. But thanks a lot, guys, for tuning in. And uh, we'll go through some more tabs because I think... I think Dale's fired at this point. We'll do more tabs and we'll talk more about early season Canada goose hunting next week. (laughs) I'm just kidding, Dale. I'll talk to you guys later. Have a good one, bird nerds.